Welcome back to Random Book Club Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Van. With me today is indie author Justin Mason. He's back for another episode. I'm glad you're here, bro. Dan, first of all, it's been a pleasure to be part of the Random Book Club Podcast. This has been an awesome experience for me as an indie author to not only share some of my knowledge of writing, but to also be involved in a project like this discussing the Sword of Bedwear. Very, very excited to get into the two chapters for today because they were bangers. Absolute bangers, bruh. 100%. So let's just jump right into it, my man. You mind if I read the first section? Please do. Oliver went into the well, chapter. World. Hold on. We're on chapter 22 and the title is Bait. Bait. Bait yes. And this is this. Uh, what you're about to read is from the book. That's why it's in a italicized. Oh, I like the way you're doing that. Oliver went into the Dwelf alone a couple days later. As usual, the place was crowded, and as usual, most of the talk centered on the continuing antics of the Crimson Shadow. One group of dwarves at a table near the bar where Oliver was sitting whispered that the Crimson Shadow had been killed on the road, trying to free four enslaved men. The muscular, bearded dwarves lifted their flagons to toast the memory of the gallant thief. So it sets off. We got Oliver alone in the Dwelf. Just hearing the rumors just going around. Yeah, uh, it, it, this this sets a tone because this is the first chapter that I remember where Luthia does not show up to the dwarf. It's just Oliver. And it starts off with this this dwarf, basic, uh, these dwarves lifting a flag into the dead Crimson Shadow. But as we go on in the very next few paragraphs... Not everybody sees that as what's going on. Despite the bearded dwarf's toast, other guests started chiming in with news that the Crimson Shadow still lived and had been running jobs lately and even killing people. Oliver was not surprised at the rumors, but neither was he impressed. The halfling remembered similar things occurring in Gascony when a thief would rise in notoriety, impositors pulling off jobs that they otherwise would not have been able to pull off. He was concerned that someone had died at the hands of an impersonator of the Crimson Shadow and worried that Luthien and he would be charged with murder as well if they were ever caught. When we're talking about the thieves in Gascony, um, other imposters would do that. And I spelled imposters wrong. So I, just I was just corrected. reading what you had there, bro. I, just I was like, it. I think it's supposed to be imposters. And I'm like, but I'm going to go with it. No, I'm sorry. I'm just... <laughs> I'm just a noob. Because my Lord Dan Van wrote it. Therefore, it must be correct. Mm. <laughs> my word is law. But uh, yeah, so it shows a little bit of history about Oliver being in Gascony and seeing the same things happen. You know, and I brought this up last episode. And I don't know if we got into it too much, but I wonder if he and one of the former Crimson Shadows or the former Crimson Shadow, I wonder if they were friends or acquainted or knew each other or had past dealings. Yeah, I'm not so sure anymore because I feel like that's kind of come and gone with Morkney knowing the past Crimson Shadow from back when he was like a mm -hmm. ruler, not a ruler, but one of the wizards of the old guard or whatever. I, you know, I don't know. We, we still have yet to see if that is the case or not. Um, so continuing on, with a look around the tavern for any fine women to court, Oliver found none. So he decided to enjoy the evening alone, sipping on his ale. Tasman was on the other end of the bar, giving the halfling a grim look. And he slowly made his way over and pointed out that Oliver was alone tonight. Oliver explained that Luthien was off 
with his half-elf love again that night, his approval for the secretive couple growing. Tasman continued to push the point until Oliver caught on to something being an issue. Tasman revealed to Oliver that Shaban had been taken to, the Duke, to Duke Morkney this afternoon to stand trial for the breakout at the mines, brought to the Duke by her own master. Tasman continued by saying that some believe her to be the Crimson Shadow, which he was sure the ministry would ask about tomorrow. One thing I didn't like about this part, and feel free to argue against it all you want. Yep. How does Morkney know about her? Like, how? There's, I mean... There's, is it just for convenience sake, or, or I, what? I, I think it is a convenience thing. They got it, you know, basically... Bob was writing this and he's like, Oh, I'm really enjoying this book. And then his like, um, uh, editor called and was like, yo, we need this by next week. And he's like, okay, here we go. Uh, Morkney hatched a plan. Cause we already saw Morkney try to find the crimson shadow yeah. and was thwarted. Um, but he did, it did say, well, you know, I'm going to find another way to get to this guy. So we don't know what's going on in Morkney's head or what, uh, yeah, but so my thought is there must have been somebody that pointed to Shaban as being involved in the mind break, which is totally fine, but it still feels like the whole thing with Shaban and the cutters is a um, is just a way to get to the Crimson Shadow. So my thought is he so he must have knowledge that the two are connected but we've never heard of this knowledge from him it's just kind of like implied and assumed i think yeah you know i really don't know how he he brought this connection together um the only thing i can think of is that he's he is trying to rid um rid the 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 city of thieves and stuff like that and this could be a way to do it as more people are impersonating the crimson shadow the only people who are going to be doing that are people that are a part of thieving bands or people that are low-level thieves that are trying to make a name for themselves and, and pulling off these jobs they normally couldn't have so by bringing people up on charges and just saying yeah they're the crimson shadow he can slowly get rid of them one by one however how they get to Shaban so quickly, I don't know. The the slave owner, like the merchant that owns Shaban, brings her to Morkney. So I don't know. So my question is, did he or she, whoever the slave uh, the slave owner, did he or she know that she was there part of that break? Like what how how do we have this connection? It's very so that's loose. a huge that's <laughs> a question for me. That's a question for Bob for me. And uh this is the section that you're gonna tweet when you tweet for this episode because I wanna know, Bob, I wanna know. How does Duke Morkney, uh, how is Siobhan brought before Duke Morkney? How does her master know that she was gone? Because didn't know that she was breaking out at night to go do all these jobs. So how does the master know that she was part of the mind break? Good question. What do you I think, Bob? Know. Can you let us know? I don't know, Bob. Um, moving on. Oliver asked Tasman how he knew all this. Tasman, how are you telling me this information? He realized that Tasman had keen ears and knew many things about Montford's underworld. There was a reason that Oliver and Luthien had enjoyed free drinks and meals for the last weeks. There was a reason that wise Tasman seemed as amused as Oliver by the many tales of the phony Crimson Shadows. So, can kind of confirm Taz he's on the, the up and up on the underground? Oh, yeah. A little bit. The, oh, gears, yeah. the gears in Oliver's head started turning. He knew that thieves 
were arrested every day in Montfort. So he began to think why this arrest was being made so public. A single word came to the halfling's mind then. A word that explained everything. Bait. But again, the question remains, how does Morkney deduce to use her as bait? I refuse to stop asking that question until we I don't get an know. answer. Well, you're, I mean, you may, yeah, you may get an answer. You want to start off the, the next portion? Honestly, if I hadn't just lost my place, I'd say yes. Give me okay. two seconds. I, I'll start it off. So now we're jumping to the very next day. Okay. Oliver lost his little girl smile as soon as he and Luthien walked between the Praetorian guards outside the ministry's great front doors the next morning. In the foyer, the halfling looked disdainfully at his disguise, wondering why he kept winding up in this place. What I, why I put that in there, that's directly from the book. I love that idea of cuts to the next scene, you know, screen goes to black, fades back yeah. in, and... It's like they're walking past Praetorian guards and Oliver's pretending to be a little girl again and he's dressed in his wig and he's like, yeah. as soon as they walk by, he's he's pissed. He's, <laughs> he's like, like, screw you. Why I do I always have to do this just to get in this place? And he's determined, you know? The pair quickly use the magic wrap to scale the wall and into the, la- into the landing high above the large room where the trial would be held. The whole way Oliver warned Luthien that the danger that might be putting Shaban in if they happen to get caught here. Not mentioning the danger to themselves. Oliver pressed Luthien until the young man was forced to respond. There's some Oliver history here. Yep. I have to know, Luthien answered. I have seen many traps baited like this before, Oliver said. And have you ever left a love behind, Luthien asked. Oliver didn't answer and made no further remarks. The question had stung, for Oliver had indeed left a lover behind, a halfling girl of 18 years. Oliver was very young, living in a rural village, and just beginning his career as a thief. Mind if I continue? Please do. The local landowner, the only one in town worth stealing from, could not catch up to Oliver, but he found the halfling's romance. Oliver's lover was taken, and Oliver had run off, justifying his actions as in his lover's best interest. He never found out what happened to her, and many times in hindsight, he wondered if his tactical evacuation had been wrought of pure cowardice. So now Oliver has had an experience like this and he's warning Luthien out of his own experience let's not do this let's not be so brash but Luthien catches him off guard with a, just a simple question have you ever left a loved one behind and that sends him spiraling back into his memories and he's like you know what I'm with you Luthi we're, we're doing this now man I'm doing this not only for Shaban I'm doing this for the one that I left behind before it's really it's a really cool way to get Oliver, who has not been on board this entire time uh, on this particular job to suddenly becoming uh, a great ally in it and going, you know what? I believe in this too. Let's see what we can do. I have a prediction. Mm-hmm. My prediction is much like, uh, I don't know if this Bayamir or, or whoever that would be from Lord of the Rings. Remember that guy? Uh, Boromir? Was, Boromir. He was kind of like a bastard throughout the first half of the first movie mm-hmm. but he but he but he came back and he kind of fought by their side and that was actually how he ended up dying yep. in the movie i have a prediction that something very similar to that will happen to oliver mm. except he'll do it for luthien <clears throat> 
may not happen in this book and it may not happen in the second book, but I have a prediction that something very similar to that will happen to Oliver and he will have a chance at redemption. Very foreboding. So now yes. Oliver was on board and ready to do whatever it took, whatever it was going to take to help Luthien's love in a way that he could not for his, his so long ago. The halfling started noticing that the defenses inside the ministry seemed to have been amped up with more Cyclopeans and townsfolk inside than he'd ever seen previously. The pair hid under the crimson cape as they made their way past the gargoyle-lined balcony, 50 feet above the floor. Duke Morkney, in his red robe, sat in a chair behind the great altar, looking very bored during the tax calls. Luthien noticed that several gray-robed people were sitting at the front pews who looked like the prisoners of the day. He observed them until he spotted which one he thought was Shaban. This is classic setup. Classic setup and classic suspense. What's going to happen? We get to hear the first sentencing and the second sentencing and the third sentencing. Finally, we come to Shaban. Finally, it was time for the prisoner's call. The first was found guilty and was to have his left hand cut off to be displayed at the merchant's shop to dissuade others from stealing. Then the next, a dwarf, was sentenced to two years in the mines. Shaban last to be called that's intentional that's purposeful and it builds the suspense what is going to happen dan your thoughts before you read this what were your thoughts i like the setup i thought it was cool that they had the gray robes on you know to try to hide the prisoners so that you're not yeah. sure which one it is um but as they're going through the call and it's not Shaban, not Shaban, not Shaban, all seven of the prisoners that are there. And then suddenly, or finally we have Shaban and it's like, well, they left her last for a reason. They knew something's going to happen. So let's see how this pans out. But what ends up happening is like, it almost seems like the Duke doesn't really care until he hears who it is. Like he does, it's like, he's not even paying attention until, well, we'll get into it. Oliver had to grab onto Luthien's cape to keep him from jumping down uh, as Shaban pleaded her case. The announcer shut her up by claiming not only was she the one who attacked the mine, but was also the Crimson Shadow. At this, Duke Morkney suddenly became very animated and demanded from Shaban to tell him the whereabouts of the dwarf she broke out of the mine. Shaban just denied, claiming she was just a servant. The Duke knew he was not getting anywhere with the slave, so he proclaimed that the owner would be compensated for his loss and the sentenced and sentenced the slave to be hung by the neck in the plaza bearing his own name. This was extreme, even for Morkney. To Oliver, this was the bait. The halfling begun spinning plans in his head on how they could get the cutters involved over the next five days to help break Shaban out before she was going to be hung. So... We're at a point where, okay, she's been delivered her sentence. We know what's going to happen. Oliver's going, okay, we've got five days. Let's get the, mm -hmm. let's get the team together. Let's get the cutters Mean going. <laughs> Meanwhile, at Camp Luthien, I'll kill you. <laughs> yes, but Luthien had other plans, <laughs> more immediate plans. Go ahead. With a cry of outrage, the young bedwear let fly, his arrow streaking unerringly for the chair and Duke Morkney, who glanced up to the Triforium in surprise. There came a silvery flash, and not one arrow but five crossed the opening to the north transept. 
Then came a second flash, and each of those became five, and a third, 25, became 100, 25, and all of them continued toward the Duke, and Luthien Oliver looked on in disbelief. But the volley was insubstantial and dissipated, or simply passed through the unharmed Duke as he grinned wickedly. He pointed up at the direction of Luthien and Oliver, their position now known. Holy she. I didn't know what the heck just happened there when I read that. That was, that was to my knowledge, that was defensive magic from Orkney. Yeah, I, I kind of thought it was some sort of defensive magic, but the thing that confused me is why would it turn into five, then 15, it then... It, it shadowed it. It, oh, okay. it, go like, it was like... And it just dissipated. Okay. So That's it, why he doesn't get hit by it. Yeah, I was kind of confused at what the heck was that spell that Luthien cast... I thought Luthien had casted it from his bow, and maybe he was unlocking some sort of special that, That's thing. what I thought at first, too. But we learn in the next chapter that it's actually a defensive spell, and Morky, yep. that's like his level one spell. He can just pop those off whenever. And he, so this shows us. <laughs> pop it off. Pop it off. Nope. Boom. D-spell. D um, this shows us that uh, Morkney was ready for this encounter. Of course. I was surprised at, at a couple things. One, that Morkney was ready for it to go down then because he said it was going to be in five days, the hanging. Yeah. So then the other thing that he said, he said something about how he sentenced her to five, uh, to hanging in five days bearing his name. Does that mean that he's going to like take advantage of her? Or does that mean that he she's just going to be wearing a placard that says his name on it? Uh, she's to be hung in the square, like it'd be Morkney yep. Square, like the big. Oh, the big, okay. Like, like, hey, we're here. We're here at Plaza Square. We're here okay. at Morkney Square. That's what that's all about. Okay, I didn't know. I I was thinking way worse than that. I was oh, thinking I that he was gonna like drop a couple kids in her. Yeah, and and then <laughs> and and then everyone would know that she's been shamed and crap. That was oh, way worse. Hell yeah. Uh, it's not that grim. <laughs> it's... No, so that's why I'm wondering why Luthien jumped on it so fast he really doesn't have to but uh i think he's uh I, I we talk about this all the time you gotta have that you gotta have your hero's gotta have some faults mm -hmm. luthien's faults are he's leaps blinded. before he looks he's blinded by this love and or whatever we have to call it uh whatever infatuation he's whatever he's definitely blinded by it to the point almost that mm, i'm 50 50 on team luthy right now yeah it, it's a little quick i mean it doesn't make sense that he would no. risk everything and I, I think he's acting maybe on impulse which we see has gotten him in trouble here and a couple of times now where it's gotten him close. Well, let me ask you this in the, I think it was in the last episode when they're freeing the, the dwarves from the mines, you know, picking up Shuggy, uh, you had mentioned a point that Luthien seemed to be running into a string of bad luck. And yes, but there was a, there was a point when even though he had some bad luck, he was, um, he was also doing some some more daring things and being more flamboyant. And we kind yes. of ascribe that to him just hanging out with Oliver too much and he's yeah. picking up what Oliver's putting down. However, the things that he's doing that are like getting him in a string of bad luck are more like his preemptive attacks where he's 
going to try to just go for it rather than thinking out the scenario like Oliver has been actually trying to teach him about looking at all aspects. So do you think that maybe the, the crimson cape is causing him to become more daring? Like, is there something in that? I think yes. But one more thing I want to point out. Luthien may be brash and may be willing to make fast decisions, but he's never shown it like this before. Usually it's Oliver that's willing to grandstand and willing to jump in to save the day and act like, you know, big shit on the block. Yep. But now it's Luthien. It's almost like the two have switched roles. Yeah. So I found myself kind of snickering at this a little bit and almost at one point going, uh-oh, this is going to cause some trouble. Because Luthien is usually the one that says, well, wait, maybe we shouldn't do that. Yep. And now it's like after, you know, a few weeks of working together, Luthien's going in so deep that Oliver seems reserved in comparison. Well, Oliver's got to be the one that's still coming up with the strategies because he's like, at any second, my boy could just go off here. So my point is your thoughts on that of Oliver now basically having to keep this guy on a leash. Yeah, if I'm Oliver, if somehow we make it out of this situation where there's more cyclopians than they've ever seen before more townspeople in there morkney's like obviously ready for this now that we've seen the spell shatter in front of or the arrow shatter in front of him through a defensive spell if we make it out of this i might be thinking about maybe hitting the road away from luthien being like yo dude it's been good but you are too hot right now if you and i were working together like this and i started making decisions like this I don't think you'd bail on me. I think you'd sit me down and have a serious talk with me and say, we've got to work better together because we're not working together right now. And this is causing a serious issue for us. I think because I, because I see a lot of like you and I in these characters. Right. And I'm always the one that's like, yo, I want to jump in. I want to head first into this. And you're usually the one that's making the plans, communicating with everybody, making sure everything's right. Making sure everybody's included on the plan and knows what's going on. Me. I'm just like, I got 350 ammo, 80 arrows, a new bow, a sword, a shield. I'm ready yep. to fight. Point Let's me in the direction this. and say, go. Yeah. Show me what to kill, you know? So I feel like you, as Oliver, would sit me down and be like, yo, dog, this has got to stop. I'd be like, yo, dog, first You're of all, I'm a halfling. Killed. I have plus two dexterity. So I this can jump around this killed. bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm worried about this. Gonna... Yeah. I can make this jump from back to back. <laughs> these gargoyles you can't you're a clumsy ass human yeah i'm worried you're gonna get me killed bro yeah so uh yeah i think i think you got some good points there so the next chapter uh is chapter 23 but is that everything we want to talk about for chapter uh chapter 22 anything else you want to say um i think that's pretty much it i was just kind of this is what it felt like to me like if, if i was bob What this kind of felt like is he was almost getting bored and wanted to get to the end because I think you could have easily drawn this out in a a couple of ways where once the decision is made that it's going to be five days until she's dead, that could be a whole cool chapter of getting connected with the cutters and planning something, maybe even uh, revealing something about Tasman, maybe his relation to the cutters or, or his connections that he might have to help where the cutters are basically saying, we can't do that or something, or they're not going to have enough guys. And then Tasman's like, you know what? I know this guy, uh, he's a ship captain named Dudramont. He just came in from the shattered Isles or whatever. Uh, He's got a crew 
of some badass guys and they've got a dark elf and if you tell them what's going on they might help you break shaban out or something you know what I mean? just something extra to add to it um and and draw it out a little bit more i i feel like this could have been planned more it, what this doesn't do for me is it doesn't show the growth in luthien it what it shows is kind of like a a faltering in luthien like i know we're not supposed to have a complete circle of like oh luthien has grown so much since he's came from bedrigen he has but in some ways he's come back down and why it's a very loose thread of love like we don't know anything about shaban like if we could get some scenes of him and shaban on their late night trysts when instead of you know oliver and taz are giggling because they think they're banging all the time but in reality maybe they're just walking down the docks and talking about their lives and how they ended up there and he's sharing some real shit with her then we would have more of a connection to where this scene that comes up would make more sense, but it would happen at the Hangsman News or something like that. All right, let me lay some let me lay some thoughts on you. This is what I'm thinking for book two, which is called Luthien's Gamble. Uh, book three, I don't know what it's called, but I think book two will be where Luthien's Luthien Grave and... is. Book three, is it? No, I just made that up. <laughs> so anyway, I think I think book two will be where Luthien has a crash. I don't know how it ends because I don't remember. But I think it's a very down point. So this is where we're seeing the beginning of the crash. I think you have like, so this is like Luthien, right? He's coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up, because he's still brash and young, making stupid decisions. Something's got to happen in book two where it's like, and then like book three has got to be his rise back to to whatever, however it ends. But that's book three is going to be the one that brings it full circle. If we that's even, why I think book two. I mean, if we even can get to book two, this looks like a bad situation here, my man. Yeah, I'm, I'm, let's find out. What is it? Chapter 23. Chapter 23. Called, Tell them. Tell them. You're dating the other guy. <laughs> Summary. Luthien fell back from the ledge as the gargoyle statue writhed to life. He whipped his bow across, breaking it on the creature's hard head, and started to call out for Oliver. But he soon realized that the halfling now with his great hat upon his head, was already hard-pressed as the sinister statues along the Triforium animated to the call of the Wizard Master. So we jump right into, oh, shit. These gargoyles that we've been seeing for the entire book are now coming to life. Yep. So uh, I immediately had flashbacks to the days of cartoons watching gargoyles. Gargoyles. And yes, I loved it. Goliath. Uh, Brooklyn, Lexington, (laughs) all of them. But um, so the point I want to make here is this is the start to another one of Bob's fantastic fight scenes. And this Uh, isn't a short one. This is a a long fight scene. Yeah. And this guy writes great combat scenes. Mm -hmm. Love it. Awesome. Love it. Go ahead. the The pair began fighting these stone gargoyles that had just sprung to life. With hide so thick, it made Oliver's rapier bend alarmingly. The people screamed below as the Cyclopians started barking orders. The man at the lectern yelling, Death to the outlaws! And adding, Death to the Crimson Shadow! This got the attention of the townsfolk as they looked up and saw Luthien focus his strikes, quickly cutting one down. It flapped helplessly as it crashed to the floor below. Like, excellent entrance there. Of it, like, it there's the Crimson Shadow, kill him. And then also, death to the Crimson Shadow. And here's Luthien, smash. And he just drops, and they're all like, our savior. 
Two gargoyles chased Oliver down as he raced towards the edge to team up with Luthien. They saw that they were quickly being surrounded by the stony attackers, with more flying across the open air to engage them. Below, the Cyclopians had their hands full as they were trying to corral the people, some pleading for the doors. One Cyclopian tried to grab Shaban, got kicked in the nuts. Then another one tried to reach for her, but got shot by an arrow that came from somewhere in the crowded pews. The cutters are this, here, dude! This whole scene, this whole scene, I'm reading this like, where are the cutters and when are these emblazoned people going to take up weapons and start fighting back? This was so sweet. I Well, I felt like this is awesome. The cutters are here and... Had Luthien not made the, the first attack, I wonder if they would have even shot. You know what I mean? I wonder if they would have even been there to save her. Well, because now they're there. They know where she's going to be. They could try to break her out. <sighs> Oliver saw the confused turmoil growing below and came up with a plan to focus the mob. I love how he's like, he's like, okay, we've got him. We've got him. Uh, strengthened we've got him we got him some courage some confidence now let's get him on the attack i absolutely adored this part he yelled to the people below the crimson shadow has come your hour of freedom is upon you good people of montfort for a riador luthien cried quickly catching on to the halfling's plan for bruce back John, the unifier! <laughs> Spectacle of Luthien and Oliver, crimson and purple capes flying behind them, swinging from the Triforium, sliding down the rope inexorably toward the altar and the tyrant duke, replaced panic with courage, giving heart to the enslaved people of Montfort. This scene had the eyes watering, dude. I was, was awesome. so hyped. I was freaking hyped, bro. Dude, okay, so here's something I do want to... This is... This is an amazing setup to the fight where it's a great entrance and it gets you hyped and the rest of the fight is really good. Yep. And if you just read along with it, you don't realize till later in the fight that this whole time, even while Oliver and Luthien come swinging down on the grapnel and they're, they're, what does it say? They're, they're purple case. What does it say? Um, uh, the spectacle of Luthien and Oliver, crimson and purple capes flying behind them. We love that. We saw that in the mines. That's so amazing, so heroic. But Oliver is still wearing a dress and a wig. <laughs> I know. I didn't realize it until later. I'm laughing. When yeah. I realized because when he's, he's pushing the wig hair yes, out of his face, yes, I'm laughing exactly my ass it. off. That was so funny. Yeah. So what I imagine is this wonderful fan art of this epic scene of Luthien and Oliver swinging down, looking so cool. But you see Oliver, his wig hair getting in his face and like a flowery pattern dress, just waving in the back. It looks heroic, but on closer inspection, you're like, that dude's wearing a dress. Who's the little girl? I can just see him going like this. Yeah. He's like, I know this looks cool from afar, so I'm just going to go with it. Love At it. At this point, the cutters reveal themselves and start fighting in earnest alongside the people. All heck was breaking loose as Luthien and Oliver were still swinging toward the altar and the duke, a gargoyle intercepted them to attack. I want to say something. Yes. He don't give a shit. Mm -mm. Look at Mark being, he's just like, oh, here they come. Yep. A couple gargoyles. I killed them. Okay, I was shot in there. at me. Oh, they're fighting. A couple Cyclopians. Well, he's looking at it and he's like, he's, 
he's kind of observing the, the place and, and we'll get into it, but he's preparing something for them. But this tells you a lot about Morphme. He does not overreact. No. He observes a lot like Oliver does. He assesses and then he acts. He does not overreact. But he's not like he's not like superhuman because when we jump heads and we go into Duke Morkney's frame of mind, he's constantly yeah, he's, just a person. he's constantly getting surprised. But yeah. the difference is how he reacts to the surprise. He never loses his cool. He just goes, "Okay, next plan. Calcul- recalculate. Next plan." Oh, you, oh, you gonna rush me? Yep. Hold on. So quick thinking, Oliver. So the, this is when the, the gargoyle has come in to intercept them and smacks right into them. Quick thinking, uh-huh. Oliver tugged on the magical grapnel rope three times to disengage it, and they started crashing down towards the floor. Before they hit, the halfling climbed on top of the gargoyle and set his man gauche against its scalp, and upon impact, the dagger sunk deep into the hard skull of the winged attacker. Ooh, that this was, was cool. Badass. This was like, did you ever see Final Fantasy Advent Children? Of course. That's that's kind of how I feel like where Bahamut's like coming down after Cloud and he just uses the force to go up and drive his sword into him. Yep. That's kind of how I saw it, but in Fly. reverse going down. Yeah, that, that was, was really cool. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? So so this is right, Oliver slams into the skull of this thing. Luthien <sighs> Luthien exploded from the landing spot and started swinging his sword. Uh, about keeping the Cyclopeans distracted as a group of men came up behind to help fight. But some of them were snatched up by swooping gargoyles as the room turned into a full-scale riot. So things are just popping off all around. <sighs> and you are it. right in the middle of it. Yep, you know? yep, yep. Okay, go ahead into the next part where we jump into the head sure, of Duke sure. Morkney. Uh, jumping into the head of Duke Morkney... He stopped his magical spell that would have sent a bolt of lightning at Oliver and Luthien. He didn't want to draw the attention of the now rioting, surprisingly armed crowd. He was prepared, though, knowing the history of the ministry, knowing the countless hundreds of deceased people living under the floors of this once holy building. His thoughts slipped into the spirit world. He reached for those buried corpses and called them forth. The ministry's very walls and floors shuddered. Blocks angled out and hands, some rain with rotting skin, others no more than skeletal remains, poked out. This was cool. He summons like an army of skeletons and basically zombies to fight and help. Yeah, because this was the ministry. It was built on the backs of the local people. Some of them died. And what? What do you want to say? This is like the first bit of necromancy. Yes. Dead magic that we see. This is cool. Yeah, it's like a last ditch, kind of. Yeah. We've seen kind of like enchantment spells in the previous chapters. We see defensive magic here. And we see some necromancy, some resurrection magic. I mean, this is is pretty cool. We're getting a wider range of action here. Mm -hmm. Luthien and Oliver were horrified at the sight of the dead climbing out of the foundations. The young man split the head of a ghoul in half and asked the halfling what was going on. Oliver knew it was Morkney's doing and said to Luthien that he was... Uh, that there was only one thing to do. The pair raced to the altar to face the Duke himself. There was nothing in between them and Morkney. Oliver scooted under the altar as Luthien raced to one side. Duke Morkney threw out a handful of pebbles, which exploded in sparks and smokes. And smoke. Oliver rushed under Luthien's cloak, and when the smoke cleared, the Duke was gone. But the halfling glimpsed a slight movement in the long tapestry on the wall behind the altar. Luthien tore back the tapestry to reveal a wooden door, which led to a staircase leading up the tallest tower 
of the ministry. Cutting back to Shaban, eight cutters now joined her and gave her a bow and quiver, and they began dispatching the Cyclopeans, bringing order back to the chaos of the fight. People were now defending themselves against skeletons and gargoyles. Shaban decided to head towards the altar and meet up with Oliver and her lover to aid the f in the fight against Morkney. But when she got within view, all she saw was the swinging tapestry flowing behind the two as they started their flight up the spiraling staircase. Now in pursuit, Luthien and Oliver made haste up the staircase that spiraled around the central tower. Luthien kept his sword up as they passed windows with stone statues, just in case they began to animate. About 70 steps up, Luthien st stopped and bade Oliver to listen. They heard chanting. The young man dove down flat to the stone stair. Oliver was slow to react and just stood there, just as a bolt of ricocheting lightning sizzled past. Luthien expected to see a, char the, see a charred and blackened Oliver when he looked back but found the halfling straightening out his clothes and his hat, proclaiming, You know, sometimes it's not so bad to be short. <laughs> A good comedy interjection yep. here, and having played things Keep it coming, like, Ollie! And having played things like Dungeons & Dragons and Baldur's Gate, I could actually see this lightning ricocheting and sizzling down the stairs. That was really sweet. <laughs> the pair continued their pursuit up the stair, Luthien having a lucid moment of self-doubt after seeing chipped stone from the bolt, bolt of lightning. What was he doing chasing a wizard up the tallest spire of the ministry? He shook the doubt away and continued on. Coming around to the end of one spiral, Luthien's eyes widened as he ducked instinctively as a massive axe swing just missed his head. Two Cyclopeans blocked the way. Oliver urged him to fight through. Through some tricky maneuvers, they were able to almost kill the two Cyclopeans, but they received help from an arrow shot from Shaban behind them to finish the fight. Oliver pushed Luthien forward, not giving him a chance to glance back at his lever, and they climbed around another hundred steps. But I, there was a part in there I really liked because Oliver had said something very previous, and the arrow comes through, and then Oliver goes to say it again, and Luthien finishes the statement for him. It was very, like, Luthien is not distracted. He's on more pain. He's focused. Basically he what he was focused. saying, he was saying... Oliver said, we need to get to the wizard before he can come up with another surprise for us. The wizard type. Yep, the wizard type before he can... She's calling him that. The wizard type. And then um, they get like kind of tripped up a little bit, and uh, Oliver says, we need to get to the wizard type before... And then Luthien finishes, before he comes up with a surprise for us. I know. <laughs> We're going. It's, it's good. I like it, though. Okay. Not giving him the chance to glance back at his lover, climbed another hundred steps. Luthien's legs ache, but Oliver encouraged him to continue, reminding him that they cannot wait. They finally saw the telltale glow of daylight and made it to a landing. Five more steps, and they were on a 25-foot circular roof surrounded by battlements. Across from them stood Duke Morkney. And cue boss theme, Dan, give us the transformation. The wizard was laughing maniacally, his voice shifting pitch. <laughs> into a lower guttural noise. Luthien looked on in horror as the old man's body lurched violently and began to twist, bulge, and grow. So here's this this part is the last like three paragraphs of the actual chapter, but I wanted to read it in its entirety because it really is an awesome visual of what is happening here 
and it gets you so hyped for what's going to happen next. This was great. Morkney's skin became darker and hardened to layered scales along his arms and neck. His head bulged weirdly, growing great fangs and a forked and flickering tongue. Soon, Morkney's face resembled that of a giant snake, and great curving horns grew out from the top of his head. His red robes seemed a short skirt by then, for he, had, he was twice his original height, and his chest, so skinny and weak before, was now massive, stretching his previously voluminous robes to their limits. Long and powerful arms reached out of those sleeves, clawed fingers raking the air as the Duke continued his obviously agonizing transformation. Drool dripped off the front of the serpentine face, sizzling like acid as it hit the stone between the monster's three clawed feet where Morkney's boots laid in tatters. With a shrug, the beast brushed free of the red robe, great leathery wings unfolding behind it, its black flesh and scales smoking with the heat of the abyss. Morkney? Luthien whispered. I do not think so, Oliver replied. Perhaps we should go back down. And that's the end of the chapter. I had cold chills when I read this part. Yeah. I'm like, this they have a potential to have an epic boss battle here. With the wings unfolding behind it, its black flesh and scales smoking with the heat of the abyss. We got demons, dude. Let me know when you're ready for a deep dive. <laughs> Real quick, Morkney's got defensive magic, lightning magic. Necromancy. Uh, necromancy, and he can talk to the motherfucking demons, dog. This guy is a fucking duke, the eighth duke of Green Sparrow. This guy is B.A., dude. So, if this is the eighth duke, we got seven more of these motherfuckers, you know what I mean? Sorry, I'm getting excited, dude. This is, this Let is me know. Ready for the deep dive. I'm putting on Are my... Are you got the tinfoil hat? Putting on my scuba. We're ready to go down into the depths. Descending to 12,000 feet. Okay, what do you got? He said he was a demon. What if this demon possessed Morkney? Hmm. And Morkney isn't bad. What if this demon, through contract with... Green Sparrow is acting through Morkney. And when they beat it or when something happens, he will get a little bit of his humanity to come out and he'll tell Luthien of Green Sparrow's plan. Interesting. I was just thinking about that. And the whole time I was reading this, I'm like, he's a demon. He transformed into a demon. So is Morkney human or is Morkney a demon or is this just magic? What is this? Well, that's didn't, what I didn't thought. Didn't he say? Didn't he say? Oh no! That okay. So back when we were in Morkney's mind before, he sank his mind into the spirit realm to perform the necromancy. But here we don't see that he's sinking his mind into the demon realm. He just starts turning into a demon. So yeah. maybe because he is magical by nature, being one of the original old wizards of the old boys club or whatever, maybe the demon was able to use his power to pretend to be a human until this very moment you're right i i like that i just want to know your thoughts that's not canon to anybody listening that's just me doing a deep dive so i am absolutely excited to read the last chapter and the, Is epilogue. It the final chapter of the book we're on the final chapter of the book 
Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, so next week it's going to be a banger. But I got some points to bring up about this. Okay. We got some errors, my man. I found some errors in the Kindle version. I noticed it too while we were reading. I was like, wait, his? Oh, what? Yes, great point. Great point. Okay, so I'm on for me on page 272. So this was in your version too in the actual physical book? Let me look. So, okay, go to I'll I'll, I'll get there for a second here in 272. Here's what I have. Oh wait, no, that's right before that. Shaban and eight cutters. This is yep. that scene. In the cathedral, split ranks, each going to a different area to try and calm the frenzied mob and try and bring some semblance of order to these rioting sentences. One of the cutters tossed the half-elf his bow and quiver, then drew out his sword and rushed two Cyclopians. Only one was there to meet the charge, though, as Saban quickly put the bow to good use. So let's analyze that. One of the cutters tossed the half-elf in reference to Shaban, because she's a half-elf, his bow and quiver. Okay, mm, so maybe sense. it's another cutter. We're not sure. His bow and quiver then drew out his weapon and rushed into the two Cyclopians. So that guy that tossed the bow and quiver runs and starts fighting. But then it says, um, uh, Shaban quickly put the bow to good use as if it's her bow that she's putting to good use. So there's a slight error. No problem, Bob. I mean, out of wait, the entire book. Wait, Actually, one of the cutters tossed the half of his bow and quiver that makes sense then drew out his sword and rushed two cyclopians because they're talking about one of the cutters and he's tossing the half elf in this case shaban his bow so the male is throwing his bow to shaban shaban quickly put the bow oh that's why it makes sense it actually is proper. that's actually proper yeah i didn't think it was at first i actually thought it was wrong okay and that makes sense he pulls out his sword okay so we're good there um Bob, we stand corrected. You did a good we job there. You, you, you just caught, you caught my eye there. Okay, that was all the... Okay, so then I on page 274. Now, this could just be um, the way Oliver talks, and I'm not sure. It's back when, um, uh, when uh, the lightning comes down the staircase, the spiral staircase, and Luthien jumps down flat to the ground, and he thinks that Oliver has just gotten bolted. Okay? <laughs> so he turns to look at him. And this is when Oliver says, you know, he said nonchalantly, sometimes, and then this is how it is in the book, is not so bad to be short. So now what I'm wondering here is, is he supposed to say it's not so bad being short? Or is this like doing Oliver's accent for him where instead of saying sometimes it's not so bad being short, maybe he's saying it like this. Sometimes is not so bad being short. I think that's so how it's, it's meant to be. So it's like a, his accent think. thing. So it's not yeah. a mistake. It's just how he talks. It, it can be very difficult to properly write an accent. And that's why even if this is a mistake, I don't fault him for it. Yeah, it can I'm, be fine. Hard to write. I'm fine too. Like, and the way that in the audible version, the way the narrator says it is he actually says is, but he does it in that accented way. So yes. I buy it, but I wanted to point it out because we're picky like that. That's what we do. Hey, we want to, we want to know what's going on. We want the full, we want to know what's up. So we are on the last two chapters or basically the last chapter and the epilogue. So next week we're going to have our final um, chapter review. Yeah. And, uh, that's going to be really fun. So I'm excited for that. But before Me we too. go today, we have a letter from the people. A message from the people. Wait, 
Wait, we have a message from the people, and Dan, you're a champion of the people. So would that make you the unifier, the people, the people's champion? I mean, I'm not gonna say I'm Bruce McDonald, but I did have a farm. So e i e i o. Let's right. let's go to it. It's actually from uh, uh, the teacher Jamie, Mrs. B. Um, B. Mrs. B. Go Wolves. She's got another one from her class now. Uh, based on something, you know, the things that are going on in the world right now, they're doing all online learning. So, yep. but they still are having class. So this is wonderful. So the um, the subject of this email is, I love this man. Oliver said, sighing. Hi, RBCP, <laughs> Random Book Club podcast. This theory started as kind of a joke in class, but the students kept finding more and more evidence to prove it. Oliver is gay or bisexual. And secretly loves Luthien. I Jesus. love it. Why did I, I know at it. some point during our podcast we were going to get this? I love it. I do too. So here's a, a passage from the book that the class has chosen. Luthien didn't blink and Oliver sighed, understanding that his friend was fully stricken. She is a slave girl, Oliver remarked, trying to draw Luthien's attention. Probably half-elven. And that merchant type would not sell her to you if you had all the gold in Eriador. Slave? Luthien remarked, to, uh, turning his confused stare upon Oliver, as if the concept was foreign to him. Oliver nodded. Forget her now, the halfling explained. So, so this is uh, from page 181 to 182. It's trying to discourage Luthien from giving attention to anyone but himself. So here's another passage. How beautiful is the wildflower from across the field? Remember this part when he's talking about all those little things? Yep. Oliver said yeah, quietly. Sure. Oh, this is when he's talking to himself almost. How Ooh. beautiful is the wildflower from across the field? Oliver said quietly, peeking at you from the shadows of the tree line, out of reach. More beautiful than any flower you, in, you have in your hand, it seems. And what happens if you cross that field and gather that wildflower into your hand? Luthien asked... Oh, the Luthien asked that, so it wasn't an accident. He's like, and what happens if you go across that field and get the wildflower? Oliver shrugged. As a gentle halfling, I would not, he replied. I would appreciate a glimpse at such a beauty and hold the ideal in my heart forever. So is Oliver talking about Luthien here or himself being the flower in the field across the way? I think, I don't think you can make the argument for Oliver being gay. But I think you can make the argument for Oliver being bisexual uh, if you want to dive that deep. Now, I, I, I guess I never really thought about that. It might have crossed my mind maybe once. But we even see in the previous chapter that we read for today that he left an 18-year-old halfling girl behind. Mm -hmm. You know, so. So he feels got, bad about that, but he did leave her behind. If it was a halfling cool. boy would he have left him behind? Maybe he's know. fighting with himself over those things. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's it, well, you know, we talk about deep dives all the time. So it's totally fair to do that kind mm -hmm. of deep dive because until you just mentioned it in that email, like I said, other than maybe once as like a passing fancy, yeah. I never thought of it. I never even thought of it. Well, I mean, if you want to get into logical, what are the facts? This book was written in 1993. Being gay wasn't cool yet. You know what I mean? It wasn't a, mm -hmm. a common thing in popular culture. The guy who writes this book, I don't think he has a whole lot of homosexual characters or anything like that. He's probably just writing a 
regular book. However, what the wonderful thing is about books and about doing this podcast and about going into your own dives is you can make these things your own. So if you are someone who likes to look deep into the words of a character, it can go beyond what the author had originally written. You know, absolutely. So that's why I think this is actually a worthwhile pursuit, whether it was the true desire of the author himself to put in a character who potentially is bisexual. We are getting more depth from the character if we look into his words. And even if it comes out that we decide he's not, which is where I'm leaning personally, um, I still like that those thoughts are going through people's heads and that we can discuss that kind of thing. And that they're thinking that deep on it, right? And they're not just taking it at face value. Like, oh, I was like, dude, don't go after No, they're like, here are two parts from the book specifically. That give us a clear example of maybe Oliver is, and maybe, maybe again, maybe maybe we lean in the bisexual range. Maybe Oliver just finds Luthien attractive. Yeah. And so here's some more questions that they they, uh, posit uh, to um, strengthen this argument. So why is he whispering? He's usually boisterous and lighthearted, especially when analyzing, uh, especially worth analyzing considering the fact that Oliver thinks Luthien's romance is pretty stupid. You know nothing about this girl, but you know about me. So why do you like her? You know? So then here's another scene, uh, another uh, line from page 197. I love this man, Oliver said, sighing. I remember that when he's like, some Luthien did something. And he's like, I love this man. I saw it as just kind of a funny little, yeah, you know? Yeah. But who knows? Um, I take Oliver. I see Oliver as a very effeminate, almost French character. What did you say? You said um, there was something flamboyant. Flamboyant. That's the word I meant. I'm sorry. Not effeminate. That's good. Flamboyant is totally Oliver. And And if you – some people who are flamboyant by nature come off to people Mm -hmm. as being gay or being bisexual. And sometimes they're not. Yeah. They're just like. They're just like, no, I'm who I am. Like, if you don't like it, leave. <laughs> so when he says, I love this man, and he sighs. Stopping I to sigh at your tall, buff partner mid-battle? Could it be a bromance? <sighs> Could it be I more? Jamie, yeah. Mrs. B. Mrs. B, what up? Uh, shipping going on here. I think having an open mind about these things and being able to discuss them, totally great. Awesome. I love it. Awesome. That's Gotta what it's about. It. Okay, so here's some more. There's one last one. Oliver shot Luthien a sly wink and took out his pewter figurine of the halfling warrior. Oliver winks at Luthien three times in this book. How often do straight men wink at their male friends? All the time, Ms. B. I do it all the time. All the time. That's what we do. (laughs) I can do both. I can do both. So if I got a friend over here, a friend over here, uh, 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 you know what I'm saying? Ms. B, we do it all the time. But I see what you're saying. Of course, it's a good reference, especially for being written in 93, like you said. Yeah. You know, of course, it's easy to exp- this is how she finishes it. Of course, it's easy to explain all these examples without assuming Oliver is gay. But I think the theory is substantial enough not to dis- disregard it. Uh, talking about this theory is a great exercise in resistant reading, reading a text to purposely move beyond the dominant cultural beliefs for the purpose of challenging prevailing societal views. I wonder if there are any other characters or situations in this book you could read with a resistant lens. All the best, Miss B. Thank you, Miss B. You're absolutely right. This is what we were getting into before I finished that. Is it is worthwhile to go into these and challenge the cultural norms of the time. Always. Always. 
because it does bring up um yeah it just it it's just interesting to talk about and it's good for your mind to have these little mental exercises well let's talk about this for just a second you know let's make this point even if during 93 maybe it wasn't cool to be gay yet or maybe it wasn't necessarily widely accepted like it is now Mm -hmm. think about this for a second you can still have a character be gay but not be out outward about it yep. not be outward about it and maybe never be outward about it because maybe that's or, the type of world they're in and it's a yeah, and it's a reflection of the world at that time back then people know, weren't we, coming out left and right because they didn't feel safe and we might even mm-hmm. get a uh, we might even get a, a scene in the book where oliver just tells luthien i love you brother yeah and you're like you're like wait a minute when do they kiss <laughs> that tall glass? I mean, think about the beginning. She asks, are there any other characters you could put this lens onto? I would argue my boy from the beginning, Garth Rogar. No. R.I.P. No. Never forget Garth Rogar and him get sweaty in the arena, dude, and they love it. And even Garth Rogar slaps him on the butt, if I don't, if I'm not mistaken, in like chapter three. Doesn't that happen? Doesn't he slap him in the buttocks? Yes. Yes. Or was it no, Luthien that slapped Luthien him? slaps him against the rear with his sword. Luthien, you dog. You, you absolute dog. dog. Well, let me ask you this question then. Is it plausible, as long as we're going down this rabbit hole, is it plausible that Luthien, that Luthien would lie with both? Totally. He is smitten like a kitten, though, for Siobhan. So, yeah. I mean, I don't he's know. Gotta, he's got to smash that high elf. I know it, dude. She, <laughs> she's got him, dude. And there's been no other guy that he's been slapping bums with. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think Garth Rogar and him were buds. Yeah. I think he, well, but you know what? At the same time, he did have a girlfriend back then. So you never really thought about it. That's true. Yeah. See, you never think of, oh man. So you just kind of, you just, you dismiss that stuff. And that is kind of lighthearted. I mean, that kind of a slap your bottom thing. I mean, you see it at football games and that's supposed to be like manly. Right. But they're like, go, you did good kid. Slap right on the tush. You know, so whatever. Well, that's gonna that's gonna do it for this week's episode. Thank you, Mrs. B, for writing in in the in the class, the tenth grade honors English. Go Wolves! Um, that was a really interesting discussion, actually. I I'll be honest with you, I never expected to have the gay discussion or the bisexual discussion about any characters in this book. Me neither. Uh, really, really cool to see people thinking outside the box and willing to have those discussions and not being closed off to the. Uh, to the idea of discussing that. We that encourage really it. Impressive. We encourage yeah. it. Any type of discussion. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much for joining me, Justin. Where Always can the people again. find your stuff? Cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm on Amazon. You guys can check out, uh, you know, if you like fantasy, I'm going to recommend you check out the Trinity of heroes, a uh, really cool fantasy book. It's about some knights up and coming in. Uh, they start as squires working their way into the night guard, fun fantasy read sequel. A grim ultimatum is out as well. And uh, if you guys want to follow us, follow us on Wattpad, Jared and Justin authors. Um, we do, a, I do, I do a lot of just, for fun writing where I do like some writing exercises and it seems super scatterbrained, but I promise there's a method to it. Yeah. It's awesome. I've actually added that link that goes directly to the subscription page of the Wattpad. Cool. cool. Um, so if you don't already have the, the app um, on your phone or the website or an account, it brings you right to their page. So you can make an account real quick and start reading right away. It's awesome. Easy, easy to get free to use. Yeah. And it's got a really nice cloud service. If you ever just want to write something on your own, 
free to use. Get after it. You have yeah, no excuse. You can start writing with the yourself. Way things are right now. You yeah. can start writing yourself today. It's it's yeah. really simple to use. You can add photos and stuff like that to give yourself some ideas and all that. I've used it myself. I never finished a story, but I started yeah. a few Super just for cool. fun. Super cool. Thank you again for joining me, and thank you guys for listening to Random Book Club Podcast. <laughs>